0: The problem mm-hmm. in India is that when you have a, a child from a very, very conservative family where they have not been exposed to nudity, they have not been spoken to about nudity, about the human body, or it is something that is considered as bad, or it is something that should be ha- hidden and covered, mm-hmm. you are taking a mindset which is which is very different and you're suddenly putting it in a, a environment which is flooded with that visual content which is, you know, Very unusual for this brain, for this very Hmm. tender brain. So you get that mixed messaging, and that mixed messaging is what causes the confusion, it causes the curiosity that the child or the person eventually may become an adult and may actually
1: misbehave with somebody of opposite sex. Comspire. Communicate to inspire. And today on this 51st episode of Comspire, we have Shruti Ahuja. Shruti Ahuja, who is a clinical and health psychologist with work experience in education sales and management and uh, she has done masters in psychology from budapest hungary currently she is self-employed and conducts training and coaching seminars for mental health professionals and students she has a strong background with multiple cultures and she loves meeting people from different parts of the world so thank you so much ruti ma'am for accepting this invitation and coming up to share some of your learnings with all our listeners Thank
0: you so much Anupam for having me and I'm uh, very happy and excited to be a part of your podcast and um, thank you so much for, for extending the invitation to be here.
1: Thank you so much, ma'am, once again. So ma'am, once we ask you the first question, like, uh, I have told about you only that much what I know about you, what I have seen you in seminars or uh, on YouTube, I have seen on Healthy Mind. So like when you thought about coming to the field of psychology, or entered in the field of psychology, how do you want to define yourself? In what way you define yourself? You introduce yourself as a psychologist? Uh, Yes, I
0: I introduce myself as a psychologist. I am a trained psychologist, but I have a specialization in um, clinical and health uh, psychology. And um, I would say that um, most of the time I identify more as a general psychologist than clinical psychologist or a health psychologist. I don't really prefer to be... um, known as a clinical psychologist or a health psychologist because at some point you know psychology as a subject is so overlapping because yeah social psychology or clinical psychology or cognitive psychology these are all different fields within psychology but they all overlap with each other right. so you are not uh, you are not completely disconnected from the social part of your life you're not connect disconnected from the cognitive part of your life everything all of this makes you up as an individual so obviously this um, I think that calling myself a psychologist or defining myself as a psychologist is more relevant than a clinical psychologist or a health psychologist because I think that all these fields in psychology are relevant and they're all overlapping and they all impact an individual uh, and they all impact human behavior in general.
1: Right, so true. Yeah. So how did you get into this field of psychology? What inspired you that you came into the field of psychology? Well, to be honest, I was uh, at the age of
0: 16 when I, when I finished uh, college, uh, as you call it in, in India, in, in Europe, you call it high school. So mm-hmm. when I finished college uh, in, in, in India, in Mumbai, I was an arts student and uh, I had psychology as a, one of the subjects in 11th okay. and 12th. And um, I just felt instantly a connection with the subject. You know, I really loved the subject and I wanted to take up psychology further um, as a professional field. But you have to understand in 2002, 2003, India or in fact, anywhere over the world, mental health and psychology was not really a well-known or well-understood field. It still isn't today, I would say. Yeah, right. Um, We are just starting to get aware about the impact of mental health and and the human psyche on uh, general global uh, behavioral trends or general global employment trends. Any trend which which is impacted by humans, you know, it is impacted by psychology. And we're just starting to realize the importance of that. But in 2002, there wasn't really an understanding of this field. And so my parents discouraged it. They said, you know, it's not really a relevant field. Um, So I got into the family business. My family at that time was into jewelry business. So I was uh, encouraged to join that. And I did that for many years. I was a sales uh, manager for my company, for my family's company uh, mm-hmm. for about two, three years. And then I got married and I moved to Budapest. And um, when I came here, uh, I was basically unemployed because I didn't know the language uh, in, okay. in Hindi, and I was extremely uh, you know, bored of sitting at home because my husband was working full time. So I started to look around at universities and see if there were some some diploma courses that I could <laughs> do just to pass my time. And I came across a bachelor's in psychology in English. It was very interesting because the whole country at that time wasn't speaking English where I live uh-huh. in Hungary. So I contacted the university and they said, yes, they have uh, availability for seats. I could come in for an interview and I could join uh, as soon as I want. And um, that's how I sort of reconnected yeah. with psychology after almost uh, let's say about seven eight ten years of being out of touch mm-hmm. with any sort of uh, psychology or any sort of education uh, in general because I was working before I got married so I had left education far behind uh so I got back into education um much later in my wow. life at around the okay. age of 22 23 I got back into uh psychology and um That's how I started my bachelor's. And then um, I I had actually not expected to do a full master's. I had expected that I'll just do the bachelor's and then I'll stop. Uh, Mm -hmm. But I got so much um, interested in the field as I went along. And my Mm -hmm. instinct from the age of 16 was absolutely right. That this is the field where I was meant to finally park myself. You know, (laughs) Um, I felt that instant uh, connection with the field. And so I couldn't stop. Like I finished my bachelor's and by that time I was expecting my first child. So I continued my master's while I was uh, expecting my first child. And then as soon as I gave my exams for my master's, then I had my first child. And Mm -hmm. um, then I went on to have my second baby. And so I put my master's on hold. And then when my second baby was born, immediately after his birth, I went back and I finished my master's. So I actually did both in tandem, like... uh, so that's how I got into clinical psychology. It was really um, sort of, you could say, destiny that I <laughs> w- always wanted to be a psychologist, didn't really do it. And then eventually, finally came to this very, very small corner of the world and got back into psychology um, at that time in my life. You know? so, so that's this, how This is
1: again, uh, so inspiring, uh, Shruti. Man. Like when you said that you. you have done your uh, graduation and master's after your marriage, along with your two kids. Kids, Yes, yes. In tandem. So
0: my son was only six months old when I went back to finish. my so
1: master's. This, this is for all those people who say that I couldn't do because I was married, I couldn't do because I had children, but I have seen many people, even I have done my graduation and master's after my marriage. And there are many people, many friends of mine, who have done so many things after they got their kids. So that's again, a kind of inspiring for all those people who keep on giving excuses. Now, Shruti, when you said that uh, in the Indian schools and all, we start teaching psychology at 11th grade. And also that's not taken so much of care and concern. People don't uh, give that much value to psychology till now. So right now, government has got the importance of physical education and that has made compulsory in all the schools, in all the classes that physical education must be there. Similarly, this emotional education, which is mental education, that is psychology, don't you think that it should be compulsory in every school from the primary classes itself, where they should be trained about their emotion, that how should they play with their emotion? How should they use their uh, mental energy to work more in whatever phase they are living in?
0: Yes, absolutely. I think that um, mental health uh, education or mental health uh, awareness is something that begins at a very young age and it mm-hmm. begins uh, from school, but not just from school, but also from oh, parents yeah. and from home, right? And um, and if, if the schools encourage this as a subject that is to be discussed, that is to be taught in the class, in the school environment, then it will in, even encourage parents to Um, discuss these subjects at home and it will it will become a a mainstream subject which which will be more accepted so that in the future you won't have parents who are afraid of a mental health diagnosis for their child or who doubt the validity of those diagnoses because one thing I've experienced a lot in my in my uh, career in psychology is that many parents um, uh, are afraid to admit that that right. this can be an important part of their children's life and that mental health eventually does make um, a, a huge impact on on a person's well-being so mm-hmm. i think that they are very afraid to accept this they are very afraid to afraid to admit it so with schools being uh, making it mainstream you know being a big part of the system i think that it would open the doors for discussion not just within the institution but also at home and also within yeah. the society mm-hmm. you know and um, Right now, I think we are at that cusp, we are standing at that point where because of the pandemic, we have suddenly realized that there is this huge force, Mm -hmm. uh, which is mental health, and uh, there is a huge awareness coming about it. I hope that this is given recognition, um, you know, in mainstream education, or even in mainstream media, for example, or even in in society in general, and also that
1: parents are encouraged at home to
0: talk about it.
1: Yeah. Mm So, yes, uh, we hope again that this will be made popular in the schools as well as physical education they are taking care of. Along with that physical education, that mental education is also very important. Yes. So, recently I have attended your session on new behavioral addiction, uh, that is pornography at the platform of Healthy Minds. I love that session of yours and uh, the way you have explained all the things and also you have presented with all the data was really uh, overwhelming for me. There were many things which we couldn't do earlier or we couldn't think about it earlier. We only saw through the data that you have provided that how much worse it is and how much problematic it is. We consider that, okay, people are like, even I used to think that it's okay. People are watching. It's their wish. How is it going to harm them? But when you showed that what can be the consequences if you are addicted to it or if you are in, like you said, a few people are there who are sitting in their offices watching porn. So what kind of message they are giving to their kids and all these things that you have provided? Like, how did you come to think about that thing in such broad ways and uh, bring the awareness to this thing, taking such sort of sessions? So how were you encouraged to take such sort of sessions? Well, when I was studying in my
0: master's, I had a professor who was uh, uh, specializing in behavioral addiction. And he was also having a practice where he was dealing with addiction and addict uh, patients. And he said that we are seeing this new trend of uh, a new type of addict, which is not an addict uh, who's using drugs or using alcohol or using substances or gambling. (sighs) We are seeing uh, more and more patients walking in with a pornography addiction. And uh, it's a new sort of, um, new sort of pandemic uh, of hmm. sorts. Because like I told you, we don't have an official diagnosis for it in the DSM. We don't hmm. diagnose a pornography addiction as an addictive behavior yet. But I think in the new DSMs which will come eventually, which is the diagnostic manual which is used by psychotherapists and psychiatrists all over the world. Um, I think pornography addiction will be eventually added as uh, uh, any other addictive behavior. So um, uh, pornography addiction doesn't really have a treatment plan because we don't really know or we didn't really know up until all this research was done about research started into it about, I would say 10 years ago, because like I told you, uh, high-speed internet came to the world only around 2006, as you heard Hmm. in my webinar. So uh, before that, we didn't really have I mean, there wasn't really this problem because uh, before that pornography was mainly consumed through downloads, uh, which used mm-hmm. to take a day or two to download, yeah. you know, or you you had to go and rent CDs or DVDs or you had like visual pictorial content like magazines. But it wasn't really until high speed internet came that we saw this kind of explosion of mm-hmm. uh, downloadable adult content. And uh, the consumer also exploded, the consumer market for it also exploded. So basically, it's a new problem because we've not known this problem before 2006. Hence, psychiatrists and psychologists worldwide don't really know how to deal with it because they've not really seen it before. So they don't know whether to classify it as a behavioral disorder or to classify it as an addiction or to classify Hmm. it as, as something else. You know, there is a classification problem. Where does it fall? Which diagnosis does it fall under? And the second problem is if you don't know the diagnosis and if you don't know if it is really a problem, which is harming society, then how Mm -hmm. do you fix it? How do you cure it? Because if you don't know the diagnosis, you don't know the treatment. So this was the main problem where they were facing, which is what my professor told me. That was one thing. But the other thing was that over a period of time, I started to come across many forums online where I used to read about psychologists, psychological work. Um, I, and, and I especially came across a couple of forums which were focusing on um, relationship counseling and marital counseling. Mm-hmm. And one very common theme that I started to notice on these forums was that many partners, not necessarily just women, but most of the time they were women, were complaining about their partners consuming pornography at home and that mm-hmm. it was impacting their relationship. And mm-hmm. when I started to read these forums, I actually realized how much of a problem this is because uh, up until then, we didn't really know much of a problem it is because I mean these forums are kind of like you know they are so underground and they are so uh, hidden and they are so kind of non-accessible by the normal public that people go there to discuss their problems anonymously and Mm -hmm. take help anonymously from each other and um, there are on these forums many a times a lot of people are psychologists Mm. um, who are helping pro bono or who just who are there because they they love their job and they like to help people so then I, I started to read a lot about these kind of, uh, and then I, and I, then I started hearing from friends. I started hearing from, from, so it became a theme. Like in the last okay. five years, I heard this repeatedly that, that, you know, not just on these forums, but from people I know that, um, oh, I mean, my, 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 my partner is addicted to his phone or her phone and is constantly hmm. consuming uh, adult content or, or for that matter, uh, children, uh. You know I, we had kids uh, in our counseling sessions where, where they, they saw their parents consuming pornography mm-hmm. they were exposed to it at a very young age by chance maybe the parents mm-hmm. didn't do it deliberately they were not even aware yeah. that, that the child mm-hmm. is watching Um or for example sometimes it even happened that friends together watched it so the child starts getting addicted the parents notice. so we started seeing this trend in the last five years that more and more people uh, mm-hmm. couples as well as parents uh, children uh, complaining or even schools and institutions complaining like we had a case where uh, one of our employees was uh, fired from his job because he was uh, watching pornography at work so okay. if it is that much of a compulsion that you cannot mm-hmm. even topple it to working only. hours then you really know that this is becoming a systemic societal problem and recently in the Indian media also with this new Chilpa Shetty's husband yeah, yeah procuring and and so, so you see this was this happened after uh we launched our webinar so we launched our webinar with healthy minds hmm. we started advertising it a month ago and then uh, a, a week after we had started the advertisement for that this, uh, this news broke out that mm. he has been arrested for this. Right. His her husband has been arrested for this. I'm not really following the story, but I just read uh, on on the Indian because I follow the Indian political news websites and uh, it's become a big debate. It's become a big debate even in the Indian media that what is, right. is he wrong? Is it wrong to produce pornography? There is this ethical question around it as well, because if it's not really harming society on a systemic level, then should we even stop it? And this is what got me interested in this question is that on an individual level, maybe on a family level, it might impact you. But if on a society level or a system Mm. level, it's not really impacting in a bad way, like drugs or alcohol, alcohol, should we even uh, consider it as a problem? Should we even consider it as an addiction? Should we even consider it as that it's something that needs treatment? So this was what got me interested, and this is why we me, me and Healthy Minds we started talking about this. And I said, I think, guys, this is a very important topic that we need to discuss. And coincidentally, just one week after we spoke about it, we launched it. This whole news broke out about in um, scene with the pornography.
1: So, do you differentiate in between pornography and nudity? Are they like uh, connected, same things, or very different? It depends, I think, in the way it is presented.
0: So, okay. um, I I would say that purely nudity would not classify as pornography because pornography is more about showing the actual acts of intercourse or the actual acts of sexual intimacy on on camera. This is what officially pornography is defined as. But this is a very fluid question as to what is pornography because for some people, A is pornography, but for another person, it's not, you know, so... um,
1: Why I'm concerned about this thing, because we always talk about rape and all the other actions, which is triggered by watching pornography and such sort of things. Like if you post your nude picture and something, people are addicted of saying such sort of uh, things to you and they want you in that manner. They will message you. They like all the sort of vulgarity starts at that time. So don't you think that somehow this nudity also encourages a sort of nasty events later on? That sort of consequences, like a few girls in India, I won't name any of them, girls or ladies, whoever you say. They say that what harm in that if I am just standing nude? But they don't understand that when they are nude, it's not just adults who are watching them; it's kids as well. And what kind of mentality they are leaving with the kids? What, what kind of uh, emotions they will have when they watch that nude lady? Yeah. So, what's I your say on sense- these things?
0: Yes, the difference, uh, my take is very different because a I live in Europe, uh, so I have a exposure to a huge, a very vastly different culture than India. Right. Uh, and secondly, also because I have seen the impact of, of the mindset on the culture. And thirdly, um, also because I have a lot of um, training in psychology and I also have, I have done a lot of research on this and I have data. So the data shows that pornography and nudity by itself does not cause a society to be detrimental towards women. What happens is that the confounding variable, which I talked about in my webinar also, is that countries like Netherlands, for example, Hmm. Amsterdam, famous for for its, uh, you know, red light districts and all these kind of, Hmm. you know, Uh, prostitution and Mm. uh, pornography and things like that famous I mean you have you you will not even believe the amount of Indians who travel to Amsterdam to get themselves exposed to this because they've never seen something like this in Mm. India right Um, but because I have an Indian background I know what it what it feels like so okay fine you go there Netherlands has one of the most you know lenient attitudes towards uh, nudity and pornography and yet they don't have crime against women so not at the rate that India does so that is why the confounding variable or the variable that we are not taking into account over here is the society itself which is that Mm -hmm. how are you trained at home what is the environment at home what is the environment in the school what is the environment in the society if you have a society like India which is very conservative in general and you flood it with pornographic content or you flood it with um, item numbers from bollywood oh, yeah. uh, movies hmm. the impact is the same on the indian mind because the indian mind is not ready for it they don't right. have the exposure to it that is required whereas in europe hmm. a child growing up in a european household is exposed to nudity is exposed to the human body from a very young age because they go to the okay. beach they they suntan with their parents they swim with their parents and most of the time the parents are in very small swimsuits and um, the parents are much more um, comfortable talking and discussing these things with the children and I think that that desensitization happens at a very young age so they become so used to it they become so used to this topic they become so used to this content not I would say pornography but nudity because it's two different things but nudity around the parents or around the family members they become so used to it that they don't really see the human body as something exclusive or something that has to be touched or something that is that they've never seen before the problem Mm -hmm. in india is that when you have a, a child from a very very conservative family where they have not been exposed to nudity they have not been spoken to about nudity, about the human body, or it is something that is considered as bad, or it is something that it should be ha- hidden and covered, mm-hmm. you are taking a mindset, which is, which is very different, and you're suddenly putting it in a, a environment, which is flooded with that uh, visual content, which is, which is, you know, very unusual for this brain, for this very mm-hmm. tender brain. So you get that mixed messaging and that mixed messaging is what causes the confusion. It causes the curiosity that the child or the person eventually may become an adult and may actually misbehave with somebody yeah, opposite so sex. So I think the concept of pornography and nudity is definitely different. And I think that it is definitely in depending on the way it is presented. So even nudity can be made into pornography if it is presented in a way where it is made <laughs> to be sexualized. Right. But if, for example, a parent showing a child a nude human body and hmm. saying, okay, this is this, this is this, this is that is not pornography. That is okay. the parent educating the child about what the human body looks like and desensitizing the child to that concept so that the child doesn't grow up with these questions in their mind, like what does it look like so that when they go out into the world and they see this content, it's nothing new mm-hmm. for them. It's nothing that excites them mm-hmm. to a point where they may act out on that excitement. So there is a huge difference, and I think that yeah. that difference is the the society itself. So you can take pornography, you can take nudity, put it in an extremely developed society, and you won't see any difference in the society's behavior towards women. However, if you put it in a society where where there is a, already a, 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 a sort of taboo against can yeah, uh, and a patriarchal and, and, and a and a sort of um, you know, a hierarchical system of men being at the top and women being uh, below, then, yeah. of course, you can see that that adult content would trigger a completely different response. So it's about mm-hmm. the society itself. It's not, I don't think pornography by itself can be blamed for a society's problems. It can It can definitely increase it. It can mm-hmm. trigger it, but it it is not the reason.
1: Okay. So you have very well cleared the whole point that there is uh, no like connection in between nudity and pornography. Yes, nudity can be used as pornography, but exactly. it's not the same thing. It's about they the presentation, how yeah. it is done. Absolutely. And and you have taken out very important fact over here, that Indian mentality, which we are talking about, patriarchal system that we are talking about, and where we are not teaching our kids from, like government has tried to start, but it has never been implemented. The sex education in the classroom from primary or even secondary, they don't talk at all but which is very important. So what do you think is different? Because you have been in India as well as abroad, US and Hungary. So what's the difference mentality that people are not still ready to talk about such sort of things to their kids? Well, I think that
0: it is a cycle, unfortunately, because what happens is that, um, so you have uh, generations. First of all, in India, the biggest, I would say, uh, obstacle to this is the fact that we are still very much a a family-oriented collectivistic culture, which means that we we extremely depend on the uh, familial system for existence, right? So we depend on our parents, we depend on our grandparents, this kind of um, familial system still exists. So we don't Mm -hmm. want to go against the values that our parents or our grandparents hold. (laughs) Now imagine if if you're a young couple who's living with your kids in the same household as your aging parents, and your aging parents have taught you that it is not okay to talk about these things, it's not okay to expose your child to these things at a very young age. You don't want to go against them and cause disharmony in the house, you know, and make things uncomfortable in the house by letting the children talk about sex or nudity in, in front of the grandparents. This is at a very familial sort of uh, micro level. At the macro level, the problem is that the people in charge of these educational, I would say, differences or educational curriculum, they themselves are not educated about this. They themselves don't know where to begin because this has not been mainstream. So we need somebody with that expertise to come in and say, yes, okay. And I think this is why we need more mental health professionals in the education system in India to guide the education system in India to say, okay, we should make these things a part of the mainstream content because when nice these man. kids grow up with that the next generation they will introduce this um, in mainstream education because they grew up with it right mm-hmm. now the people in charge are all people from the previous generation so i think yeah. it's very it's a generational thing you know the generations have not yet collided in that or they've not merged in that way that you know there isn't uh, so maybe i have hopes that 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 the future generation um, you know it could be um, it could That change could happen if we start implementing it now because the new generation then will go on to teach their kids and they will also go on to become politicians, they will go on to become regulators who will change these, these rules eventually and I think that that change can happen. So the number one obstacle is obviously this this kind of familial system. And then of course, the number two big obstacle is the literacy rate itself. I mean, you yeah. can educate people as much as you want in the cities, but ultimately, it will not make a big systemic change until we don't go into the finer corners of, yeah. I, uh, of India and actually educate everyone. So right. uh, As the literacy rate goes up, you will also see the rate of people getting educated about everything uh, going up. But the problem is right now, uh, education in itself is is not available to everyone in India. And, And this is the major problem. So in the smaller towns and cities and villages, every child is not getting educated. Every child is not getting the right to education. Um, Many, many uh, small uh, people from small areas of India, villages from India don't consider education as an important part of life. They take their kids out of school at a very young age, especially if they're girls and they're sent to work, um, you know. And so this is kind of the obstacles we are facing kind of. So till it does not go down to that finer depth and to every corner, nook and corner, we are not going to see a major change because, the cities are progressing in every way. So sex education has become a part of many um, schools and many, many counselors are doing it as well. Uh, many parents are also encouraging it in cities, but the uh, real change will yeah. happen it happens at a country level. So, right. and that only the government can do. And that the government can do when the government themselves have the education for it.
1: Right. So here in your session, you have also talked about that uh, kids who have gone for porn websites, and they have like 90% students have reached to that thing. And in India, actually, we don't know even how many have reached because both the parents are working, they are not able to see that what their child is doing on the computer on the screen. So right now, it's very much concerning issue. And at that time, when we don't know, like, as you said, that awareness is required, not only that kind of mental awareness, also this technological awareness is required. And as you said, government measures are also required in that the person who can really work a lot is the parents. So what will you suggest the parent so that the parent will keep an eye or will try to be friendly with the child and will communicate well so that they should not be updated, they should not get into those sites and uh, get addicted to such sort of things.
0: See, I always talk about Anupam, I always in psychology, I always tell people, especially parents, you know, you cannot stop. I said this in my webinar also, you cannot stop any behavior. Hmm. You will not be able to do this because you will make an enemy in your child. So you you tell your child with a big red cardboard, stop, not allowed. Hmm. You cannot do this. There is a very good chance that child will go ahead and do it anyway. So um, we have seen this, we have seen this scientifically researched, backed up with data, evidence from every country, from every part of the world, every society, it shows that the minute you stop children completely or you disallow behavior completely to happen, those societies have shown the maximum failure in controlling uh, that behavior. Look at Israel. Israel is one of the best examples I have. Okay. Israel is a very, very highly sophisticated country when it comes to mental health. Their systems are very, very good, um, very well uh, organized. And um, I know this because I have Israeli friends. And in Israel, you don't get education to stop anything. So when you have education in school for drugs, for alcohol, for sexual behavior, you're not told, stop, don't do this. It's not allowed, it's not good for you. Instead, you're given the tools and the uh, the knowledge to make the right decision for yourself. And Israel okay. uses this model, which is called harm reduction. So basically, the only thing you can do as a parent is you cannot stop it. You cannot control it, but you can reduce the harm it causes okay. on your child. So you have to accept as a parent that... At no point is your child going to be 100% in your control. Maybe Hmm. up until 10 years, 11 years, 12 years, you'll be able to. But (laughs) once they start stepping out to their their friends' houses, you don't know what's going on. You don't know what kind of uh, content they're going to be watching. You don't know what kind of friends they're making. You don't know what kind of uh, people they're talking to. These are not things which you are going to be able to control. For that, you'll have to lock your child up in the house. So um, ultimately, what can a parent do? The biggest fighting weapon a parent has over here is knowledge itself, is communication itself, is harm reduction. Okay, I cannot protect my child 100% from everything, but I can definitely reduce the harm it causes on the child's mentality. Mm -hmm. And by preparing your child that you are going to be exposed to these things, this is what you should look out for. Your child starts to feel uh, that yes, I'm aware of things. I don't need to look for these things outside. My parents are giving me access and letting me decide for myself, letting me uh, satisfy my curiosity without telling me I should or should not. And also, I'm not afraid to discuss this with my parents. So if I come across content at a friend's house, which was different to what my parent discussed with me, I can always go home and tell my parent that this is what I saw. And Hmm. this is different to what you showed me, or this is different to what you told me. So what's right and what's wrong? you know so this is the dialogue that, that that has to happen between parents and children has to be there is nobody better on, on uh, uh, for a child than a parent to do this because you have to understand you know your child the best you have raised your child you have given birth to your child you know your child's habits you know your child's personality this is a very powerful tool that even a school or an educational institution or a teacher does not have. Mm -hmm. And you, uh, as a parent, you are able to discuss many, many sensitive topics with your children, um, make it less difficult, make it less sensitive for them. So that when they go out into the world, they are prepared with the right knowledge and the right information. So I always say to parents, don't focus on stopping any behavior, focus on harm reduction. How can I reduce the harm this behavior right. will cause on my child? My child is going to try alcohol. My child is going to try drugs. My child is going to be exposed to adult content. How can I reduce the harm? So yeah. Israel has uh, deployed this model everywhere uh, in schools, in, 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 in educational institutions, in counseling institutions, in even in parents are educated about it, to talk about it with their children in a way that, okay, if you go out drinking, be careful of this. If you go out and somebody offers you drugs, be careful of this. Um, Mm -hmm. If you're exposed to adult content, this is what you should be aware of. If somebody tries to talk to you online, this is what you should be careful of. So that sort of harm reduction is constantly happening between parent and child. And it opens up that two-way pathway for communication, Mm -hmm. not just communication, but also feedback. So when your child comes home, they give you feedback about content that they've been exposed to. So you get an idea also of what's happening in your child's life the most important thing here is that a child should not feel afraid Mm -hmm. um, to to tell their parent that this this is what is happening. And the main problem I see in India or Indian families is that there is a huge level of fear, um, a huge level of, uh, you know, awkwardness or embarrassment. Mm -hmm. and They don't want to discuss a sort of thing. And this is not the child's fault. This is very important to understand that children are not at fault over here. You as a parent, you are also not at fault. I don't blame the parents here also because it's a uh, system, system which has, is, it, yeah, that is operating on that uh, premise, but ultimately, every generation has to take a conscious decision to change that. So, I, right. as a parent, have a conscious decision to change that for my kids, and then they have to make a conscious decision to change it for their kids. So, yeah. till we don't break that cycle, it will never stop. So, um, that's why I always appeal to parents of my age, like y'all are the younger generation, you know, break that cycle that our parents had established of not talking to us about these things, talk yeah. to us. Talk to your kids about everything. And this is, I think, this is the the best way and the most open way and the most uh, honest way to do it.
1: Yeah, even I have been teaching for more than 10 years right now and dealing with teenagers only, like 9 to 12 standard students. So I have seen, like what you were telling, I have the evidence of that. Those kids who are very open to their parents, both the parents, not just mother, not just father, both the parents, they are not just confident, but they take the decisions rightly. Like they know that I should not be indulged in any such sort of thing, which will harm me physically, mentally or any way. So that is very important. What parents don't understand that when I am open to my child, then maybe my child is much more safer. Like I should tell you one more thing. Students right now are circulating many bad messages or whatever name you will tell related to sex. They are sharing messages with each other related to a kind of a, such sort of messages that we can't even imagine. So how are they sharing such sort of messages? How are they having fun in that? And how we are not aware, that is more important. Why they are not sharing it with us when they are sharing it with their friends? So you have said it very well. We have to adapt ourselves rather than asking them to stop. Don't do that. So that is very important. But once you say that we need to communicate that conversation, that communication is very important. At what stage, at what age that communication should start according to you? as soon as possible there is no age as soon as your
0: child becomes verbal as soon as your child becomes uh, of understanding age is able to speak uh, is able to hear which is I I think at about age three most Mm -hmm. kids have enough language development that they are able to communicate effectively Uh, the trick is to modify the way you communicate with each age group so if right. you're dealing with a teenager who is about 14, 15 years old, they are very, very intelligent. They are almost at the adult level of understanding. So you can use adult language with them. You can use proper terms with them. You can use normal uh, you know, uh, communication uh, channels with them. Um, maybe with younger kids, it's a bit more complicated because they don't really understand language. They don't understand body language. They don't have a very good insight into what words mean what what certain things can mean so in this case we have a lot of visual material that you can ha- use there are books available which you can order online um and there are also yeah. organizations uh, which which help with this schools can be roped in um to design educational content uh, which parents can use at home you know there are websites where you can go and 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 you can show the children um you know, human bodies and and things like which are their private parts, which are their parts, which are for the public. These things are already happening, but they are happening right. more um, towards
1: um, sexual. They're abuse. not publicized uh, much. Yeah, like, no, they are manner. more. They, they, this is v- okay. Sexual alarming. abuse in more. Yeah. yeah, it is widely
0: being implemented by the government, but this is yeah. mainly because of the very alarming increase yeah. um, in India against uh, in in, in violence abuse. children. Okay. So this is. Um, because there's such been an alarming uh, shoot up of, of crimes against kids, um, the government is now introducing these programs in schools where people right. are coming, talking about uh, sexual abuse and how to protect yourself against sexual abuse and things like that. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about more of that. I'm answering the question of how can we stop the abuse in itself? How can yeah. we change the system of abuse and violence against children in itself? I'm not saying prepare the victim. That yeah. okay, you might become a victim. I'm saying prepare the perpetrator, prepare the criminal, or change right. the criminal's mindset, right? Right. Because what is causing that child or that person to eventually become an adult and become an abuser? Yeah. That is the question that needs to be targeted. And there is the problem. The problem is not with the victim, the problem is with the perpetrator. And the perpetrator's hmm. mindset has an issue. In this case, okay, you can say in 99% of the cases, it's a man who is, mm. um, you know, committing a crime against a woman. Right. And um, in this case, why is it? What is the male mindset lacking in India? Why is the male mindset failing in India? Mm. Why is the male population in India um, deteriorating mentally to a level where where crimes are happening at such a high rate against mm-hmm. women or against children? So that is the question that needs to be answered. And I think the answer to that is basically one is obviously the patriarchal system that we follow at home and believe it or not, it's the women who are, who are driving that patriarchal system at home. So it's the, it's the mothers and the mothers of uh, the mothers and grandmothers of sons and grandsons who are uh, pushing that um, patriarchal system. Even now that it's the sons who take importance it's the boys who take importance versus the girls. It's happening in every family, no matter how modern how city-based, how educated, how well-traveled you yeah. are. I have even seen families with thousands of crores of rupees, well-traveled, have homes in you know London and New York and all. Right. These kinds of families also are following that patriarchal system. Even today, the son is still given food first before the daughter is given yeah. or the daughter-in-law is asked to sit down in. So this is that systemic change that needs to happen at a very, very base level. And... Um, You know, we need to see that male mindset being changed, become more sensitive, more sympathetic to women and more uh, in tune with the exposure, with with, with the emotions. Because uh, we don't encourage boys to to, um, talk about uh, their feelings. We don't encourage boys to play with uh, uh, feminine uh, toys. We don't encourage boys to wear feminine colors. So we are basically telling a boy all the time that, you cannot behave like a girl. Anything to do with a girl is bad. Yeah, you can't that's wear, bad. you can't play with dolls. You can't mm-hmm. uh, wear heels. But if mm-hmm. a girl wears shorts or if a girl wears, um, you know, or plays with cards, it's okay. You yeah. know, she's just a tomboy. You mm-hmm. know, but God forbid if a boy starts, ex- you know, showing feminine sides of himself. You know, yeah. and 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 everything to do with feminine is is somehow disregarded in the right. Indian culture. And yeah. this is the main problem we talk about feminism but but when everything feminine is disregarded as bad or or (laughs) insulting or degraded you're giving a message to a child that I'm a feminist mother I go to work every day but I don't allow my son to play with dolls because it's not good he's a boy what will people say about him You know, so this is it's a mixed messaging, which is happening at a very, very base level. And it's it's too sophisticated for a layman or for a normal family to understand, which is why it needs to be implemented on an educational level, it needs to be implemented on a countrywide government level, because a normal person doesn't think like this uh, day to day when they're raising their kids, you know. And I think that it's, 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 we we are all guilty of it. I mean, so many times I, I, even my family members, if my son goes in the kitchen to help me cook, they'll say, you know what, are you a girl? You're cooking cooking with your mom, you know, Mm -hmm. or if he, if he, if he wants to clean with me, they'll be like, oh, come on, you're not a girl. You're not supposed to clean. I'm like, why, you know, why should a boy not clean? Why should a boy not cook? This is the mixed messaging that we are doing at every level. And uh, this is, this is, so this is where I think that the problem is that we are always trying to change it from the victim's perspective, but rather we have to change it from the, from the perpetrator's perspective. And then comes the whole, how this is wrapped into sexual education at home, like, you know. Um, mothers talk to their daughters uh, very Hmm. openly about this, but they won't really talk to their sons. This is another problem which I have seen repeatedly in families is that I can talk to my daughter, but how do I talk to my son about this? (laughs) This is where the fathers come in.
1: This (laughs) is
0: where the male involvement comes in. So it's very important for fathers to be just as involved in these discussions and for the fathers to explain this from their point of view also, both to the child, to the female child and to a male child, what the fathers... The most important is for a father to be a role model in this case for a man, for a a growing up young man or a son or a daughter to set that bar up high, that this is my father's way of thinking is, you know, something which I aspire to. So it's very important that even fathers get involved and fathers can have these discussions with their sons much easier than a mother can. And um, I think this is where both parents need to be involved in the process. It should not be one parent's prerogative, but rather both who should uh, who should do this you know and of course like i said governments have to encourage and agree that that this this is okay and that both parents are allowed to you know we are allowed to have these these discussions legally and safely
1: <laughs> yeah so you have again pinpointed a very important message right now that we ourselves are uh, disregarding feminism and then tell that <laughs> yeah like it's okay to be a boy for a girl to be a boy but boy yeah. cannot behave like a girl that becomes girlish and as you said that that is a kind of he's getting inferior from his status where he's standing exactly. as a male exactly everything which is feminine is inferior for some reason yeah. yeah yeah. So very good point and uh let's come back to that thing for which we have started the discussion here oh. we were talking about like how can we Tell people that it is not good for you, like if we talk about drug addiction, we know that how it is harming our brain, how it is harming our whole construction, bodily construction and everything, all the sort of harm is there. When you have alcohol addiction, what kind of harm is there? We tell about all those things. So similarly, when we talk about porn addiction, so what kind of harm, what kind of consequences might be there? So can you please pinpoint a few of them so that people will know that how dangerous it is and how much it is going to harm their whole identity? Yeah, well, I mean, the harm
0: from uh, pornography or from porn addiction comes on every level. When it it starts with physiological, neurological, like I talked about the neuronal connections that that are uh, made while you are, um, especially while you are a young person and you are growing up at a very fast rate. Um, but even as an adult, you know, you're making neuronal connections all the time. And our body is basically made up of cells that replenish every few, se- like every second you're shedding trillions of dead cells and you're, you're making new cells. So you're, you're, you're not a fixed organism, you're dynamic, you're changing constantly, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. And this is why a lot of people notice that their skin changes over time, their hair changes over time, they they're, you know, so if you were a fixed, fixed Organism in time, you would never age, you would never change, you would never lose weight. Mm. You would be the same exact person that you are every single Mm. day. It's because you're a dynamic organism and the effect of time and the effect of weather and the effect of what you eat, how you live, everything has an impact on your cell quality. So you're shedding cells and making new cells every second. The same goes for your brain. So whatever you consume whatever you do mentally um, how you think how you behave everything impacts your brain so that obviously if you are watching pornography or if you're consuming drugs or any sort of addiction behavior you're engaging in, it will change the way your brain is performing Uh, the the way your neural connections are happening that obviously has an effect on your hormones because your brains control your brain controls the uh, excretion of your hormones the hormones are controlled, reproductive hormones are controlled by the brain. So your reproductive hormones will switch in in response to that cellular behavior. So you will start seeing physiological problems, especially for males. We have seen a huge alarming increase in erectile dysfunction in young men. And most of them complain about a pornography addiction. You're seeing a huge problem with fertility rates uh, because a lot of men are becoming impotent or becoming infertile or not able to, you know... um, have an erection or have an erectile dysfunction so that then eventually they're not able to have children um and then obviously that leads to a psychological impact so it's all tied into each other like a cycle psychologically you start feeling um completely lonely, run out. And you may lose yeah. friends you may lose your job you may lose uh, a lot of uh, you may lose your partner eventually over right. over this um, obviously, that's going to have a psychological impact. And then finally, it is a societal impact because, because if more and more families go through this, you're going to mm-hmm. see more and more families breaking down, you're going to see a huge social impact on the kids. So at every level, there is harm. And you can explain it in this way to everyone, and it's even easily explained to children as well of a certain age, like above 14, 15, even children can be explained this too.
1: That these are the levels
0: of harm that it's going to cause to you eventually in your lifetime.
1: Thank you so much, ma'am, for this wonderful conversation in which we have already shared so many things by now. And uh, I hope that all the listeners will get to know so many things that is still taboo in our society. People are not ready to talk about it. Parents, teachers, schools all have just pressed their lips, locked their lips because this is bad. We don't need to talk about it. And once anything is bad, you don't know what people are. People are not considering smoking as bad. It's okay to smoke in public even though it is ruining them. It is okay to drink, even though you know that what kind of consequences might be there. But it's not okay to just talk about it. It's okay to rape and publicize that that lady has been raped by so many people. But it's not okay to talk about how to stop that mentality, how to work on that mentality. So that's really a huge message given by you. And uh, that has inspired me to and I have already hoped to work on this thing. just to make the people, make the children aware that they should not come into this thing. Because every time we see such sort of uh, news or messages that this girl has been uh, victimized or this girl has uh, been terrorized, we feel that we should go and murder him. But but how did that person crop up? It's not like he has uh, grown as a kind of demon in the first place. What was the mentality? What has provoked him to do that? That's the mental sickness. We need to work on that. And that's, again, a great message. And with that, we will be able to help so many people. And at the end, I would request you to share any three values that you think that all our listeners should have and uh, they should move ahead positively in their life. Well, I think
0: that uh, the most important thing is that you should... I can I can tell you what are the three things that every, every listener or every person should value. Obviously, the number one is time. Because if there's anything that the pandemic has taught us, taught us is that... Um, <laughs> Time is very, very, uh, it's a very dynamic thing. It is a thing which can, which can um, sometimes feel fast, sometimes feel slow. Um, <laughs> and also you don't know what, uh, what time you have left with which person in your life. And so I think time is of the most utmost value. I think this is something that the COVID-19 pandemic has taught us for sure. Um, the number two thing I would say is that every listener should value their core strengths. So, you know, we have this culture of focusing so much on our weaknesses that we are all the time aware of our weaknesses. I can't do this. I can't do that. This is my problem. That is my problem. We very rarely actually tend to focus on our strengths. Hmm. So I think, of course, it's very important to be aware of your weaknesses. It's very important to talk about your weaknesses. But it's also at the same time very important at the end of the day to acknowledge for five yeah, appreciate minutes, and strengthen. That where was I strong today? What right. was my what was my strengthening point today? Or where did I display my strength today? Mm-hmm. And um, I would say the third thing and the most important thing is I value work. So I think mm-hmm. that um, these three things are are of course uh, for me the most important because this is what has made me uh, so confident of of you know where I am today or who I am today is that I value my time. I value my core strengths and I value my work because I think that if you don't value your work, you won't be passionate about it. You won't be um, committed to it. So I think that whatever you do or whatever you choose to change in your working life, if you choose to change your career or if you choose to change your habits, value your work, whatever you choose to do and and choose or if you don't value it, then choose something that you do value and something that Mm -hmm. does mean something to you. And I think then that is how people will start to make a difference in their that's life right. and also in
1: other people's lives right so time core value and work so that's really amazing and uh thank you so much once again for giving so much time and uh thank it will be a home. blessing for all the kind of listeners thank that we have you. thank you I was really it was a very good session and
0: i had a lot of fun talking to you
1: thank you so much